folding pocket. Welcome to the final episode of Series 2 of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer, chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each week, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hi, hello, Kat. So we're all disembodied again, aren't we? We're not in the same place for <laughs> second week running. Uh, I know, it's really, you know, it's quite upsetting, really. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of strange. Don't like so this sort we should of have mediation, get around a table. <laughs> Where, are you still in Oslo, yes. Kat? I'm back in deepest, darkest Wiltshire, actually, so oh. no. But Charles is still far distant, I think. Yeah, I'm still in Canada. Very beautiful. That's got a bit autumnal and uh, there's no one around, which is one of the joys of Canada. You do have a lot of space. I see you're flying the Union flag behind your head, Charles. It's the little corner of this house that is forever England, uh, but the rest is thoroughly Canadian. There's maple leaves wherever you look otherwise. So shall we go straight into it? Yes, why not? My topic is surnames and the history of surnames, because I think this is a really fascinating one. And I could go anywhere with this in any country, because people obviously have different traditions, different countries, so I'm basing it mainly on England and the UK, and Norway, not surprisingly. But they're not actually that old surnames, and surnames in the sense that we think of them, so inherited surnames, not just sort of the second part of your name, because people have been using nicknames especially for a really long time. But in the UK, surnames in that sort of inherited form come in with the Norman invasion, so only a little under a thousand years old. And before that, they were all nicknames or patronymics. So, you know, you could be relating to some of the son of, so your parents, essentially. And we do see some of the records of those. They tend to be things like related to professions or what you were doing. So Smith, for example, is, a, is an English uh, word. And with the Normans coming in, naming traditions change more generally. So it's not just that we've got new people coming in because actually there weren't that many people but French names become popular things like William, Robert, Henry which all seem to be called the same thing and people just take these things on and what's really interesting is you can look at a record of that change, a little sort of snapshot, if you look at the Doomsday Book records, which uh, Doomsday Book being this big survey, there's sort of tax reasons, mainly William the Conqueror coming in and, and making this big survey of the whole country. And that's actually got a record of landholders, landowners in 1066, the time of the innovation, and 20 years later when the survey was carried out in 1086. And you see the change there in, in land ownership, but also surnames. So in the first part, they don't have surnames. Second bit in 1086, people do. So some of those are the incoming Normans, but some are not. And we see some of the older names survive as well. So especially those that relate to professions. So I I mentioned Smith earlier, that's the Anglo-Saxon or English word. And some of them changed to French versions. So the French version survives in surnames like Farah or Farah from Ferrier, so a worker in metal. And there's a Celtic version as well, because obviously you have some Celtic words, so from the word gobber, so surnames like Gao, Gowan and, and Gov all came 
brilliant from the, the Celtic version. So you've got these brilliant ways of, of sort of trying to entangle some of those origins as well. Place names, French place names coming in as well. So if you have one of these surnames that's got a kind of Norman or French element to it, doesn't necessarily mean that your family has that origin. So some of them were just taken on. Some of them were sort of, if you're working for a nobleman, a Norman nobleman, they might be listing you in the records using the French or Norman version of your name. So Carpenter, for example, would have been, an English version would have been right. So that's the sort of the separation of those. And it's really in the Middle Ages that surnames in the inherited sense come in then, so after that. But they're not really fixed, so they're not in the same way that you have to have that same surname in the same family for a long period of time. So well into the 15th, 16th centuries, that's when they start to become more permanent. But again, it could change them. So it could be land ownership, for example. If you're if you are sort of family of landowners and you get new land, then you might take that as well. And Similar things seem to happen across Europe, lots of places. Middle Ages is really where things happen. And I think some of it is because of urbanisation. People are moving. If you're living rural in the countryside, it doesn't really matter quite as much. Other places, it's even more recent. So obviously, I had to look into Norway and the history of Norway. And ours are extremely recent. And it's only about 1900s that the majority of the population of Norway actually have surnames in the sort of inherited sense. Well, that's because there's only three people <laughs> in Norway, isn't it? I mean, that's well, part yeah. Of the issue. Yeah, so there used to be two. <laughs> Take that's not that hard to separate them. Yeah, no, that's definitely a big part of the reason. And it's with the urbanization and population growth. But it becomes also when people start having surnames, proper sort of surnames as opposed to just nicknames or, you know, someone from their place, it starts with being a a sort of elite thing, a posh thing. So if you're posh, you've got a surname. And uh, also people with military affiliations, a lot of them come in their foreign names, people are taking on foreign names. Some of them are just completely made up as well. So it's all a little bit random and they can keep on changing them. And it was only in 1923 that there was a law that anyone who was born had to have a surname given to them at birth. So it's a really, really recent thing. And some countries obviously still use patronymics so that the sort of daughter or child of Iceland still do that. They still have tradition. So you are called just the, you're the daughter or son of uh, whatever. Kat, isn't it true that in the telephone directory in Iceland, they list people by profession? Because there's so many Sigmunds, Dottiers and Magnussons that there's just points doing it in any other way. Or is that a myth? Ooh, I actually don't know. I've never looked at a um, an Icelandic phone book. I don't know, but they haven't really haven't got many people. They've only got about 300,000, so that's kind of a bit easier anyway. But yeah, it is difficult and it's difficult to understand for the customer. I've got an Icelandic friend who just had a baby in England and, and they couldn't understand. They gave the father's name, which is not, it doesn't make any sense to them at all. So they had to change all the records and it's all confusing. But we do have some quite fun records going back to sort of a bit like a phone book, the book of settlement, uh, which dates to the beginning of the settlement of Iceland, and it allegedly records all those first settlers. And that gives a lot of names and a lot of nicknames as well. So this is Viking Age, so people don't have surnames, but they do have some really quite incredible uh, nicknames. And some of them are really quite hilarious and quite rude, actually. So you have someone like Kolbein Smurreder, who is Kolbein Butterpenis. You have Einstein Meinfretter, who is Einstein Harmfart. And then you have Harjolf Holkinrasi, who is Harjolf with a crouched arse. So these, these are the surnames in that um, 
ancient phone book of Iceland. I mean, I imagine that being called Butter Penis might not be the first choice of surname for a red-blooded Viking. And I wonder, how did that get attached to them? Didn't they have a right of appeal? Couldn't they say Iron Penis or something instead? <laughs> you think so, wouldn't you? Well, I guess it depends who's actually putting writing this down. We have no idea. They're quite common, actually. These are really quite rude and quite awful uh, nicknames given to but people. But that was one of the dangers of arriving in America at Staten Island or whatever, was that you had rather bored people on duty there and people arriving with very little English and were given appalling surnames by the sort of immigrant population, the generation before, thinking, right, I'm going to really nail you. And I'm not going to give examples, but they were quite rude, some of them. Give yeah. an example, Charles. Absolutely. Well, I'm afraid it goes beyond butter penis. Let's, let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> so some bored official at Ellis Island gonna... would just think we're going to have some fun with this one. Yeah, that's right. Ellis Island, you're absolutely right. Yes, that's it. You just say, oh, here we are. They've got some people, you know, just arrived from Hungary and they don't know what we're saying. So we're just going to give them these names and it would be a sort of in-house joke. But the joke was very much on the people who then had to settle in the country. I think we've got a comment from our disembodied voice as well. Richard, you mentioned Iceland and the phone book. 375,000 people in Iceland and it lists everybody by their first name. Then comes the last name, then the address, then the occupation to set you apart from all the other John Johnsons, and finally the phone number. That's very useful to know, especially if you need an electrician in Reykjavik. (laughs) (laughs) Takes you a while, you have to choose a name first. (laughs) What do you think is a reliable name for an electrician? (laughs) So, do you know your surnames? origins. I obviously had to fall down the big rabbit hole, which is the surname dictionary, where you can look up tens and tens of thousands of, of, of names. I mean, I know you do, Charles. You've mentioned that before, I think. I do. I mean, so look, I don't know. I think I do know my family were sheep farmers in the Middle Ages, but they had these sort of pretensions, like a lot of people then, that they came over with the conqueror. And so there was this idea we were de Spencer, not Spencer. And somehow we were the stewards of uh, William the Conqueror's household but that's probably a bit of a stretch but that's I believe it was dispensator became dispenser and then spencer yeah so according to the dictionary the first one that's recorded is that there's a robert led dispenser in 1204 but it is one of well, william the conqueror's men had that name as well so it's just a question of whether there's there's that link and how about you richard well, I don't know. I mean, I, it's such a boring name and that my heritage is almost exclusively Kettering back to, I think, the Jurassic era. So, But then someone once <laughs> said it might be cool, as in the German meaning cabbage. But I don't know. No, so according to the dictionary, uh, there's a few possibilities. So from coal, it could be a pet form of, of nickel, um, as in Nicholas, a sort of shortened version from that. That's the most likely one. There is some that, that goes back to the coal, as in coal and coal black. And there's also one possibility that comes from a Scandinavian word, actually. So coolie or coolie. Could also be a nickname from collar, which could mean the bald one. Again, not necessarily the nicest Anything about Anything about penises in this mix? (laughs) I've been trying to search for penis reference. No, but you'll like this one, though. I did find, because it lists earliest accounts and earlier mentions of names. So there was a Richard Cole, without an S at the end, 
from 1185 in the Templars records. So one of the Knights Templars were called Richard Cole. I like the sound of that. Here's the thing, Kat. There is a charity which I discovered when I was Vicar of Finden, which exists to make payments to incumbents in the Church of England of churchyards, for the upkeep of churchyards, with the surname Cole or Coles, spelt in all the different variants of that name. Did you know that? Mm, Didn't know that. That's quite a, a good coincidence, isn't it? I was vicar of the part of the world where my family come from, and if I look in the registers, as I often did, variant spellings were very common. So Coles spelled C-O-A-L-E-S was quite common. C-O-L-E was quite common. No way of distinguishing if there were you know, family connections between them or if they were different families, I guess perhaps not, I don't know. Kat, you've been rather coy. What's your surname mean? The German element is uh, probably from German, actually. So the first records, again, it's a Norman one, so German. My maiden name is Lee, which is a, a sort of topographical name, like a sort of slope, a sort of sheltered slope, basically, because most of the Norwegian names are all just geographic or patronymic. So, again, not particularly exciting, unfortunately. <laughs> no. Keep things simple. Yeah, well, I do. We have family records going back with this patronymics to about 1600s. And so they're listing the, the sort of head of the household and they're called Paul and Daniel every other generation. So you have Paul Danielson, Daniel Paulson, Paul Danielson, Daniel Paulson, literally for about eight generations. And that's it. <laughs> you can't. You have no way of knowing which one's which. Not very creative. Isn't that a, a bit of a nightmare for historians of that region, Kat? If everyone's got the same name, it really is. And there's no surname, so you can't really. You know, you, there might be a place you need a place, and then you just have the first name. So, tracing back family history based on your name is very, very difficult. But do you want to know my favourite facts? Please. Yeah. So this was a bit surprising to me, actually, because I was going through the deed poll and sort of name change and surname laws and legislation. And actually, in the UK, there isn't a legal requirement to have a first name or a surname. So technically, you don't need to have one, which I thought was bizarre. That's amazing. It's not yeah, actually that's, that's a new fact. You have to be registered at birth, so you, you have to be registered with a name, but that isn't the same as actually legally having to have one. And you certainly don't have to have a, a surname. And you can change it. You can change it to pretty much anything you want, as long as it's not for criminal purposes. <laughs> you can change oh. it. <laughs> but if you, want to, if you were Prince, say, and you wanted to be the artist formerly known as Prince and be known by a sort of seal rather than a name... Would that be legally recognisable? If you don't actually have to technically have a name, then I suppose it would be. That's very useful to know. Now then, we're going to go on to Charles this time. And surprisingly, you've gone from something a bit gruesome again, haven't you, (laughs) your topic? Well, it is the end of the series, as you mentioned, and I thought I'd go out with a flourish with ordeals. You know, ordeal is one of those words you think you know a bit about. But I was researching a book about four or five years ago, and there was a true story about William the Conqueror's eldest son, who's called Robert Curthose. And Robert Curthose lived quite a sort of loose life, sowed his wild oats, etc. And then one day, a lady appears in his court, and in the records it says she was a beautiful lady who was the concubine of an old priest. And she arrives at Robert Curthose's court in Normandy and says, look... I have these two sons, they're both yours, and I want you to make some endowments towards them so that they can live a princely life. And he clearly remembers the woman and their relationship, but he's not convinced that the two boys are his. 
He's suspecting that they could be anyone else's. And so he tells her that in order to win his favour for the towards these uh, in this paternity suit, as it were, she must undertake the ordeal by fire. And this is a rather terrifying... Well, all of the ordeals are pretty bad news, apart from one we'll get to at the end. But there's a, a convention with women, essentially when they're accused of adultery, this is a, the normal ordeal for them, is to have to grip a red-hot piece of iron and walk nine paces with it. Then at the end of that, their hands are bound up. And all of these ordeals that I'm talking about in the, in the Christian world were very, very regulated because you're looking to God, the omnipotent, all-seeing God, to mark the card of the person undertaking the ordeal. The hand of the woman who had been put through this ordeal would then be bound up for three days and then inspected by a priest. And essentially what you're looking for is no scarring at all, which is, I don't really understand the logic of that. But the second prize, which again saw you as innocent, would show that your hand was healing. If it was still festering and and looking as though it was going the wrong way, then you were guilty. Well, in this case, the lady in question was found to be telling the truth. And her two sons, you mentioned the way everyone was called the same thing, one called William and the other one called Richard, they then became part of Robert Curtos's extended court and were very popular young men. And just going off at a rabbit hole, because it came up in an earlier episode, just a reminder of how incredibly dangerous hunting was around 1100. Uh, You've got one Richard, who was one of the three sons of William the Conqueror, is killed in the New Forest hunting with a stray arrow. We know the most famous case of this is another son of William the Conqueror, William Rufus, who's also felled by an arrow in 1100. And then one of these two illegitimate sons of Robert Curtis was killed again in 1100, two months earlier, hunting in the New Forest. So an incredibly dangerous pursuit, I'm just going to say. Do you know, Charles, this is apropos nothing in particular, that one of the only two archbishops of Canterbury to have killed people killed someone in a hunting accident in a forest. No, I didn't know that. What, what, yeah. Tell us a bit more if you, if you can. Well, I'm going to have to remember his name, which I can't do. I'll ask the disembodied voice to do that. But he was an Archbishop of Canterbury, I think in the Tudor period. I may be wrong. But he accidentally shot someone in the forest hunting. The other Archbishop of Canterbury to have killed someone was Robert Runcie, who was Archbishop of Canterbury about four ago, who had served in the Royal Tank Regiment in the Second World War in combat and had that horrible distinction. But there you go. Well, actually, yes, that's absolutely right. And my, my father and he were colleagues, comrades in arms, actually, and uh, in tanks in World War Two. Yes, and I think Robert Runcie got the military cross, actually. So he killed people with distinction in, in a military way. Uh, it was actually the start of the Stuart era, end of the Tudor era, start of the Stuart era. July 24th, 1621, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, George Abbott, killed a gamekeeper named Peter Hawkins whilst hunting in Bramshill Park in Hampshire. Mm. So I, I'm going back, really, to... What's this all about? The Christian ordeal is really calling upon God. And it was always a quite a controversial thing because of that. The simple folk, if I can put that, the simple Christian in Europe saw the logic of this. Often in cases, legal cases, criminal cases, where there weren't sufficient witnesses or perhaps no evidence at all, it seemed the only appropriate thing to do was to call on God to make his judgment. But there were more religious people, people in the church, who were very worried about the implications of this because they viewed ordeals as blasphemous. 
you know, why should you presume that God would want to get involved in some minor matter to deal with a, a land issue or adultery or whatever it was? And so they became very controversial. And in fact, in 1215, the Lateran Council, the Fourth Lateran Council, decided to do away with them. But before that, they were a very big deal. Charlemagne, the great ninth century ruler in Europe, he insisted on these. He thought they were a very efficient way of calling on God and making sure that God's will was done on earth. And he was one of the great champions of it, especially when there was little or no evidence. He particularly liked the ordeal by hot water. This was the one that was his standby in his empire. And this is a really, I'm sorry about this one, but the priest would bless some water and boil it in a cauldron and then bless an object, usually a a metal ring or it could be a stone, and then throw that into the cauldron. And then the person undertaking the ordeal would have to retrieve the ring. Now, it depended on how big the crime was, how much of your hand you had to put in, how deep the object was. So it could just be up to the wrist or it could be up to the elbow. But the real catch with these ordeals is if you were innocent, you still suffered. You know, it just doesn't seem fair. And the one that really upsets people, and this is probably the most commonly known ordeal, is the one by cold water, not hot water, because you'd be bound by hand and foot. The whole thing done under extremely correct procedure because this was a considered very rude to summon God if you weren't getting the details absolutely right. And particularly, say, if you were accused of being a witch, you were bound by hand and foot and then thrown into the water. Now, here's the logical problem. If you sank, you were innocent. And if you floated, you were guilty. So that I, I've never really got my head around that. And of course, hopefully you were retrieved before you died as an innocent. It just seems terribly unfair that you, you're going to sink. Obviously, people couldn't swim at this time anyway, but being bound hand and foot made it a lot worse. I think the um, there are more sort of macho versions of these ordeals, touching on the dueling aspect, which we, we saw a few weeks ago. There was always trial by combat. That, again, had a difficult outcome. You know, you could be wounded in battle and lose the battle, and then you would be put to death. Or, you know, you were mutilated, and I don't want to go into all of that, but there were so many outcomes that could go very, very wrong. But the, the overarching thing that I... When I looked into the traditional ordeals, hot water, cold water, and hot iron, it seems that about two-thirds of the people who are recorded as having undertaken these ordeals were found innocent. And in an age where it was so far from CSI, it was seen as giving people a, a second chance when a crime was in doubt that God could save them. But there's so many different ones. I mean, the trial by iron could be gripping it, Or it could be that you had to take nine paces in bare feet on red-hot plowshares. I don't know who thought of these ordeals, but there was a sort of very vivid imagination going on as to how people could suffer. There was a variation on the hot water one, which was boiling oil with very much the same constituent parts to it. And then there's quite an interesting thing. The British were sort of appalled by other people's ordeals. And the East India Company that really started to take over trading areas uh, in the East from the 17th century. In 1895, they made a compendium of strange customs by people they'd come across. And they noted that people in Siam, as it was, Burma, as it was, India and Cambodia, had an ordeal by diving. 
And this was often provoked by really quite small matters to us, but very big matters to the locals involved. A cockfight, for instance, if somebody is seen to have cheated. And the idea was that they chose a representative, the two aggrieved parties chose a representative, and they would dive into clear water and cling on to a beam or a pole that had been stuck to the bottom. And essentially, the one who stayed down longest was seen as the winner in the dispute. We still have ordeals today. I'd love to say they don't exist. But um, there are places in Africa where people are still subject to ordeals. There's a nut called the Tajina nut, which grows in Madagascar. And it is not something you want to eat normally. It can stop your heart. But it's been a sort of test of witchcraft since the early days. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And in the mid-19th century, it's estimated that in Madagascar, 3,000 women a year were being killed by this ordeal to see if they were sorceresses. And I'm afraid it still seems to happen in remote parts of Madagascar today. There's a similar one with a bean, which is, uh, was used to be used in West Africa. The idea being that if the right side, you're on the right side of uh, sorcery, you would be made by a sort of spiritual force to vomit out the bean before it took effect. But if you were guilty, the bean would stay inside of you and cause asphyxiation. So there's a lot of ways of getting very, very ill or dying through these ordeals. It's interesting. I think the the, the fiery ones, especially in a Christian context, Charles, strike me that they kind of have, they're a foretaste of hell, aren't they? It's as if the dispensation of doom or bliss is foreshadowed somehow, and that the test is one which will obviously have an implication on where you end up. And so it's a little foretaste of hell, I guess, just to concentrate the mind. I think you're right. I hadn't thought of that. But yes, and, and there's a sort of purity to fire, isn't there, symbolically, not just in Christianity, but in Sanskrit culture. In, in Sanskrit, we read about it. And uh, in India, the god of fire was called upon while the priest uttered mantras. And uh, again, the ordeal was undertaken by non-Christians in India, an ordeal by fire. And also in India, there was an ordeal by snake where a ring would be placed under a venomous snake in a pot. And you were innocent if you managed to get the ring out without being bitten. I mean, it's against, a lot of the time, this is very much against you. (laughs) Richard, what about iron? So I love these with the red hot iron. Is it just that that gets fire and hot? Or is is there a Christian context to the metal iron? Do you know? Most of the Christian imagery about metal and fire is about purifying agent rather than a sort of agent to create heat and warmth. I guess iron was just a convenient thing, wasn't it? A lot of it lying around in the Middle Ages, and an iron bar would be... Stays hot it's, for a long time. <laughs> but you do want... It's interesting because I, I'm familiar with some of the kind of incredibly detailed deliberations church authorities went through when they were setting up the ordeal... But you would have thought that somebody somewhere might have thought that perhaps the quality of the evidence it produced might not be objectively quite as solid as you might wish for. That never really seemed to occur to anybody. I suppose they thought of how we discover truth or falsehood in a different way. Yes, I mean, I I read in this research that the ordinary person, not the intelligent churchman who had doubts about blasphemy, they saw this as absolutely as logical as we see the jury system today. It was not thought of as a game of chance. It was it was the best you could do as a human being by securing God's help. There's also, you know, very, very basic ones, which, I mean, this is just a game of chance, really. 
ordeal by blood. So if you had a body that was found in a parish, it would be presented and all the suspects would be asked to touch in turn the body. And if the body started to bleed again, then the person who had touched it last was the one who had killed the person in question, which is really tough, isn't it? I mean, hopefully they wouldn't bleed again and everyone would just go home to the pub. And did you have a favourite fact? I don't know if we can have a favourite fact about this, really. But... I do. No, I do. I do have a favourite fact because obviously one of our rabbit hole detectives is a priest. And I thought it was hilarious that the only really easy one of all the ordeals was one reserved by the priesthood. And it's called Trial by Host, which is quite camp, frankly. And it was basically, if you took a wafer at communion and, and coughed, then you were guilty. Well, that's not that's <laughs> not hot iron. That seems to be the easy way out. <laughs> I think it's a very efficient and rigorous test of a priest's goodness and method. I, mean, I would recommend it. No. I love that they reserved that. Out of all the ones they could have kept, it was Trial by Wafer. By <laughs> Wafer. <laughs> Love that. Thank you. <laughs> well, I think that leaves us uh, with you then, Richard. And we won't give you a wafer just to <laughs> just to make it easier for you. But you are going to be uh, musical today and talking about the bel canto. I am bel canto. Now, this is the last of the series, a swan song, you may say. And I wish you'd come with me for a moment to Italy in the early 19th century. And there in Catania was born Vincenzo Bellini, the swan of Catania. So-called because his name is indelibly associated with bel canto, which is a style, well, it's complicated. It's three things. Bel canto literally means beautiful singing or beautiful song. It's also particularly associated with three composers of the early 19th century, Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini, the swan of Catania. But also it describes a sort of style of operatic singing, the origins of which go back much, much earlier than uh, the 1800s. And you'll still find bel canto singers singing today. Why is it important? Well, it's important, I think, because it represents something quite significant, not just in the operatic arts, but in all arts. And you might say human enterprise. And it is the eternal battle between style and content. In opera, of course, that battle has tended to be around whether something should be realistic, dramatic, powerful, stir our passions, or whether it is more properly something beautiful, melodic, something that will enchant and enrapture us. And bel canto was really a style of singing that tried to be the latter kind, associated with great singers such as, for example, Maria Malibran. The first, I suppose, bel canto stars were actually the great castrati, of the 18th century. Castrati, in fact, go back much earlier than that. But in the 18th century, perhaps the most celebrated male singers were the great castrati, people like Farinelli, the most famous, uh, Senesino, Caffarelli. All of them were boys who had been castrated before puberty in order to preserve a high voice. So often uh, the parts written for women in 18th century opera were sung by the castrato, although there were many parts that were sung by castrato too. The advantage it gave them was the power of male physique and a highly developed... They also, there's a thing that happens when you castrate boys is that it affects their joint development. And as a result, limbs tend to grow long and rib cages tend to grow large. So huge lung capacity, 
undeveloped vocal cords which produce this extraordinary it's not quite a falsetto although sometimes it sounds like falsetto it's not quite a high tenor sometimes it sounds like a high tenor it's a very unique sound but what that enabled with all that lung capacity was for the melodic line they sang to be highly highly embellished highly highly colored full of twists and turns and vocal acrobatics So Farinelli, for example, could command enormous fees, enormous fees, by singing in this way, which was, it was like watching gold medalist athletes. It was like watching the greatest artists of their day. And they could do the most extraordinary things. They were rather fractious, actually. And they conducted affairs. Did you know that Senesino notoriously got involved in a big fight with the third Earl of Peterborough? Because um, the third Earl of Peterborough's wife, the Countess of Peterborough, she was an opera singer. And uh, Senesino apparently made sexual advances towards her, which caused a huge hoo-ha. So even though he was not equipped to steal, as it were, nevertheless, they were getting involved. Because they were so popular, because they were so charismatic, because they were so lionised, they uh, got into all these sorts of, of battles. Castrato's rather faded away, as you can imagine. It's not a vocation to which many are called and... Uh, not a vocation many would likely take on. But the style of singing endured. There's a recording of the last one, I think Moreski was his name, and he was a Sistine Chapel castrato. And in 1904, the London typewriter and phonographic company went to the Vatican and recorded him singing. You can hear it now, and it's a very haunting, spooky sort of sound. There was even a rumour that a special castrato was reserved for the delight of the Pope alone, who lasted until 1959, not true, as a matter of fact. What happened with that style of singing, though, was it was adapted for a stage performers who didn't need to undergo that procedure in order to achieve their ends. I mean, Mozart was really a writer of bel canto. If you listen to some of the, uh, the tenor arias, for example, like Il Mio Tesoro, what you're hearing there are these beautifully, beautifully articulated lines. And the style of singing was one that evenness of tone was incredibly important. You could show no sign of a gear change if you went from chest voice to head voice. You had to have this wonderful evenness of tone. You had to be able to go from a fortissimo to a pianissimo instantly without any sign of strain. So there was something highly developed about that style of singing. And it suited these sort of stories that came with it. Oh, Charles, got a question. Obviously, thinking about the castrati, so it's a hell of a gamble, isn't it, Richard? Because is there a guarantee, if you have a beautiful voice as a, as a young, unbroken voice, it surely doesn't guarantee that even with the castration that you're still going to be a great singer, does it? So you're, you're taking an enormous gamble with your the future of your life in, in terms for a professional possibility. Well, often it would be, of course, choir boys would be the candidates for that. So they'd already shown their mettle, as it were. And then, of course, the fortunes that could be earned were so extreme that often poverty... I mean, in uh, in the 1720s and the 1730s, 1740s, about 4,000 boys a year were castrated. And you could go to Naples and find yourself... Well, there were shops that had a sign-up saying, boys castrated here. The procedure, Charles, seeing as this is kind of something which um, I think you will, well, not exactly relish, but um, the boys were made to sit in ice-cold water and then either dosed with laudanum, opium, or have their carotid artery, artery compressor that they passed out and the procedure would take place either with surgical, by cutting, or by twisting so that the um, testicles necrotized and dropped off. Of course, anaesthetics were unreliable, compressing someone's carotid arteries, not a good idea, so lots of people didn't survive. But the rewards were so great. 
One of the greatest of all, Caffarelli, volunteered for it. We know that. He didn't come from a poor family, but from a middle-class family. But I think he was a bit of a diva because he was um, tremendously notorious for his terrible behaviour on stage later in life. But he, he volunteered at the age of 10, I think, for the process and um, benefited materially hugely from it because they had this extraordinary vocal control, this extraordinary ability to project into a theatre these incredibly technically demanding pieces in a way which absolutely bewitched audiences. There were great bel canto singers in our own time. Juan Diego Flores, for example, is of that kind. And of course, the great battle between Joan Sutherland and Maria Callas in the 60s, 50s and 60s, both of them singers of the bel canto repertoire. If you listen to, for example, an aria like Casta Diva from Bellini's Norma, which is an absolutely exemplary piece of bel canto writing, it's a lovely melody. It's not one you would harm exactly because it, it tends to not really resolve into a recognisable pattern, but it goes round and round the houses in ever more convoluted and complicated ways with a great deal of ornamentation, extraordinary demanding of one's technique. But it does have this bewitching, sort of enchanting quality. The stories related on nonsense, really. I mean, some of them familiar, like the Barbara Seville, Rossini or William Tell. We all know about that, don't we? But uh, I think Rossini wrote about 40 operas and then made an absolute packet out of it and then retired, very surprisingly, at the age of 36 and had a 40-year-long retirement because he was quoted as saying much later in his life that bel canto had died and that the style of singing that he and Donizetti and Bellini associated with was supplanted. Did you know what supplanted it? It's that form versus function again. It was drama. People thought that what they wanted was drama. So instead of these beautifully controlled, beautifully modulated, even song, they were looking for something that was punchy and powerful and so you see arising the sort of tenor that reaches its apotheosis in the heroic the helden tenor the heroic tenor of wagner a man called gilbert dupre a frenchman born in i think 1801 great tenor bel canto singer but then he did something he's supposed to be the first person ever to do a thing which really was to dispel bel canto into history he hit a high c in his chest voice not in his head voice. It wasn't unknown for a tenor to hit a high C before, but it would effectively be in falsetto and sound really a bit like a castrato. What Dupre did was manage to achieve that in his chest voice. So he was in the loudest possible mode of his voice. He was able to hit that high C. And that, of course, became a huge thing. So tenors after that have been able to do that have been the most celebrated. Caruso, Yossi Bueling, Luciano Pavarotti, among several others. But Belcanto itself faded with the, the rise of the operas of people like Verdi. And Verdi was looking for something punchier, something more dramatic. And so that beautiful style of singing began to fade into the past. It's an interesting one. It does rather divide opera fans. Traditionally, opera fans are a sort of you quite like your Mozart, your Verdi, your Puccini, or you go for Wagner. Some people are sort of well, I'd say pansexual, if you like, when it comes to their opera likes. But I think the really dividing one is people who like bel canto and people who don't particularly like bel canto. And you can change. I love Mia Wagner. Oh, God, nothing I enjoy more than spending four days in the Bayreuth Festspiel house listening to Wagner bellowing out at us from the orchestra pit or from the stage. But as I've got older, I've become to like bel canto more and more. There's something about its formal qualities and something about its technique and something about it's, it doesn't want to shake you. It's not a roller coaster. It's a walk through a beautiful landscape, I think. Charles.
actually, it's a personal question, but for those listening, if you were going to showcase Bel Canto, what would you point them towards as a piece that they could listen to now? Well, there's a lot, actually, but I would really seriously recommend, I think, Casta Diva from Bellini's Norma. And you could listen to that sung by Maria Callas. You could listen to it sung by Joan Sutherland. There are all sorts of people who'd sing it. But that is probably, for me, would be the bel canto aria that I think is most, not typical, but I think exemplifies its signal qualities. So that's Casta Diva, Chaste Goddess from Bellini's Norma. Would you like a favourite fact? Yes, please. I think there is a Norwegian connection here. Oh, no, it's Swedish. I was thinking Jenny Lind, who I think was a Swede, not a Norwegian, wasn't she? Yeah, I think so. Well, it was close enough. Oh, so, well, she was a great singer of bel canto, but never mind that. But my favourite fact is Donizetti, who was a, he composed oh, more operas than you could count. They churned them out. They were the popular entertainment of its day. But one of his lesser-known operas that I was lucky enough to catch, I think it was at the Wexford Opera Festival, is Emilia de Liverpool. You may not be aware that Liverpool was a place that was considered rich in dramatic potential to the romantic imagination, but it was. And Emilia de Liverpool was a piece that didn't really find a huge audience. It hasn't really settled in the repertoire. But the thing I liked about it most of all, which suggests that perhaps Donizetti was not completely au fait, with the topography of that lovely city I was there last week, actually, was that there's a stage direction which says the action unfolds in the mountains around Liverpool. Well, (laughs) we may snort, but I was in Liverpool last week and I had occasion to go to the top floor of a tall building and looked around me and what did I see? I saw the Welsh mountains in the distance. So it is just possible that you can have action unfolding in the mountains around Liverpool if you wish to. Wonderful. Excellent. Well, that's that's brilliant. I'm going to have to go out and listen now because I know very little about this. But I think that takes us to our favourite, least favourite part. I don't know. Depends a bit. The point where our disembodied voice is going to choose a winner for this week. Surely it's your favourite part of the show, Kat. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, depends. Depends on the results. Charles won the first series, but Richard, having won last week, has more wins in the second series than anybody else, and he can't be caught in the second series. But overall, we've done 27 episodes, and it is 9-9-9. Right, so that's what really counts. We don't really, you know, first, second series doesn't really mean anything, does it? So it's all to, all to play for. <laughs> Richard, just to clear up, uh, Gilbert Dupre, born 1801, not uh, 1806, not 1801. And of course, Jenny Lind is Swedish, born in Stockholm. But those two errors don't stop you from being this week's winner. So congratulations. Well. So does that mean that I not only win Series 2 Slim, but I also have achieved more wins than either Cat or Charles in the entire run so far, just to be clear? You are the Grand Wizard of the Rabbit Hole <laughs> Well, I should like to thank my fellow rabbit hole detectives. I should like to thank everyone at Folding Pocket. I'd like to thank my family who made me who I am today. But most of all, I'd like to thank you, dear listeners, because that's what you do, right? Richard, would you like to celebrate with some wafers? (laughs) I can. I'm up to any wafer you care to throw at me, Cat. Excellent. Well, well, maybe we should have a look then. Well, congratulations, Richard. That's that's amazing and well done. That's a very thorough win. 
Excellent. That's well, very good. Well, it wasn't good. a thorough win, was it? I mean, it could have gone... It was very, very evenly matched, and I just got... I think Castrato's, you can't really go wrong with a Castrato. Your face was a picture, I was going to ask that. Way. Is it Castrato's or Castrati? I don't know. Is it Castrato's or Castrati? Well, Castrati, if you want to be sort of formal about it, although they would have... I mean, the name is common in English, so Castrato's. Of course, they weren't called that in their own time. Mm. They were called musici or musico, as if it was a sort of euphemism, perhaps referring to the process whereby they achieved their vocal accomplishments was not considered very proper. Or the everati, emasculated, I suppose. But you Mm. wouldn't get many Mm. of them now, would you? I mean, can you imagine? I think it was Pius X in about 1903 who finally said, look, no more castratos for the Sistine Chapel. Thanks very much. So, you know... I think the state band... This is Richard's in... victory lap. I know, he's just thinking, he keeps on... You've already won, Richard, you can leave it now. It's Sorry. fine. Don't rub it in. I wish I'd done just <laughs> castratos now, because they're so fascinating. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay. I've changed my mind, you don't win. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up then. And uh, so that's it for this week. So thank you to everyone out there for listening. And as always, we do ask that people subscribe to the podcast if they can. Leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. And don't forget, keep on sending us emails if you like. We'd love to hear your suggestions of topics, rabbit holes to fall into in the future. So you can write to rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. Do look for us in the Daily Telegraph on every Wednesday in our column where we discuss a few more of our favourite facts from the show. So we're going to be back straight away with the next season, season three of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a bumper 20 episode edition of Fun Facts and Ephemera. So in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, not all who wander are lost. So we'll see you again very, very soon. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.